All right, show of hands, um, how many out of your own personal pleasure reading, or if you're like me, it was in high school, was required reading, have read the book, The Lord of the Flies? I don't know if that is still, it's probably not still required reading for kids in school uh, anymore. It certainly was during high school. I don't remember almost anything I read during high school, uh, but I remember that book. If, if you are familiar with it, it is this cautionary tale. It's, it's a made-up story of a group of young boys who end up on, stranded on a desert island, on, on an island. And uh, it sort of recounts the, the happenings of these boys as everything hits the fan and goes just total chaos. It, it's the vying for power that happens amongst them, the, the wrestling with morality and, and the like mob mentality that just takes over. It was written by a guy named William Golding in the 1950s. And it was, it was written as not only a, a cultural commentary, but also as a cautionary tale. The, the 1950s were the time where the world was coming out of World War II. The, the world was wrestling with questions like how on earth could so many people go along with the Nazis and the atrocities? How does that happen amongst people? How, how, what do we do with the, the fear of even a, a more deadly nuclear war that could happen? How do we understand the way society is interacting with one another, people to people, nations to nations? And this, this book was written as a cautionary tale reflecting upon these questions. Last week we jump back into the book of Acts. We jump back into our study in the book of Acts, and today we're coming to a text that is also a cautionary tale. We're coming to a text that is a cautionary tale, a warning from God to give us pause. I've titled our sermon, God is the Gospel. God is the gospel. God alone is our aim. God alone is our goal. God alone is the fulfillment of all that we are made for and long for. But sometimes when God moves, there are some who come to him for the wrong reasons. Sometimes when God moves, there are those who come to him for the wrong reasons. And the question that we are going to be challenged with today is this. Why are you here? Like, wh why, why do you come to church? Why, why are you approaching God? What are you looking for? What is your motivation behind it as you serve, as you give, as you attend? What is your heart? What is my heart? We are seeing God move as we go through this book in the book of Acts. 
on the pages of this book, we're seeing God move in many incredible ways. We're seeing God move in our midst. Perhaps you think about, as, as Josh talked about last week, I want to see God work in in my school, in my workplace, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my own life. We want to see God work. We're praying for eyes to see God work. God is moving in our midst, but here's the warning. Sometimes when God moves, some of us, people, maybe even me or you here today, we come to God for the wrong reasons. After Stephen was killed, which is what we learned about last week, there was this great onslaught of persecution that swept throughout the early church. Now this was, as we saw, not against God's plan. This, this wasn't against God's plan. This was actually part of God's plan, and God is at work in this. We begin today in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It says this, Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that came out from Stephen, they preached the word wherever they went. The execution of Stephen and the persecution of the rest of the church propelled the followers of Jesus out to all of these different places, and that is what led them to go and preach the gospel beyond just Jerusalem. Philip, it says in verse 5, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. We first met Philip alongside of Stephen back in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we had, we had this moment where a whole bunch of stuff was falling through the cracks in the early church. Do you, do you remember this? The, the, the people of God were, were, the church was booming. There was now more than 5,000 people that had come to Jesus, which is incredible. The people of God were giving generously, which is really amazing. Loads of monies coming in. There were people in the midst of the congregation. In particular, we saw some widows who had some significant needs. And so people are giving to help their brothers and sisters that are in need. And the, the problem was the money wasn't always connecting the dots. There wasn't any, like, anything nefarious in this, but, but just it wasn't organized well. It wasn't organized sufficiently. And so what we saw in Acts chapter 6 was these seven men were appointed to organize this whole thing so that the, the money would get to the right spots and none of those who were in need would get missed. We read in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group, the whole church. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That was who we looked at last week. Also, Philip. Procurius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas. Okay, so Philip is one of the seven that was commissioned to help look after the widows and organize the daily distribution of food to them. But we don't see, it's interesting, we don't see him here serving widows. 
We don't see him serving widows. We see him, as it said in verse 5, going down to a city in Samaria and proclaiming the Christ. Now you might think, man, Philip's job got messed up by the persecution. He was supposed to do this in Jerusalem. And then Stephen got killed, the persecution happened, and man, he's not able to do what God really called him to do. But don't for a moment think, Bethel, that God's plan has been thwarted here. Remember back to Acts chapter 1. Remember back with me to the words that Jesus gave at the end of his life here on earth before he ascended up into heaven. He gave his disciples a commission, a game plan for how the church was to grow. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We started to see that, right? We've seen the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost, powerful preaching, powerful healing, powerful miracles, 5,000 plus people coming to Jesus. We've seen that happen. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, check. In Judea, all right, that's starting to happen. But wait a minute, they had been staying there. Oh, but God's plan was always... Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth. God's plan has not been thwarted here by the persecution. God is using this as a nudge to keep his purposes moving forward. Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. This is God still moving. This is God still at work. This is God still leading his church forward. Verse 6 says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks and evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in that city. The The same power that we saw at work in Jerusalem with the the Word of God going forward in power, with the Spirit of God being poured out, evil spirits being cast out, miraculous healing happening of the sick, the same power is now at work here in front of us, just like Jesus said would happen, In Samaria, as Philip is on the front lines of all of this, all of this is showing us God is moving. That's what what I want you to see first of all. What we are seeing here definitively is even though incredible persecution and hardship has happened to the church, God is moving moving. God is at work. God is transforming lives. God is pouring out his Holy Spirit. Saul and others thought, oh, we're going to crush this thing the way these followers of Jesus, but God is bigger than even the biggest enemies. 
I know obviously the song wasn't written yet at this time, but I just have to think when I consider this sort of time in our text that this song we often sing here at our church would just be like the perfect anthem that they would have like jumped out of their seats to sing. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. If our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? The early church would just be like, amen, praise the Lord. God is moving. That is true. Nothing is going to stop God when he works. But remember, this is a cautionary tale. Our text today is a cautionary tale because when God moves, there are some who come to him for the wrong reasons. This is a cautionary tale for us, Bethel. A challenge for us because when God moves in our midst, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our circles, there are some who come to him for the wrong reasons. We now meet this guy named Simon. Verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Simon is a magician. Not the kind of musician, magician that you like invite to your little kid's birthday party who wears a top hat and pulls like a rabbit out of it, okay? Not that kind of magician. Simon is a sorcerer. Si Simon is, is a, a conjurer of evil spirits. Simon is a demonic magician. And he was known all over this region of Samaria. We see here actually twice that it says that the, he, he amazed the people. We don't, we don't know exactly what he did, but, but it's clear that there was power that Simon had that many, great and lowly, had seen him demonstrate. And they were just enamored by this. They were awestruck by this. They were, they were drawn in by this. How does he do this? Notice here, dear friends, just because someone is able to do something that is beyond explanation does not mean it is right. Notice here, Bethel, just because there is a power that goes beyond human 
explanation does not mean we should follow it. This guy Simon was doing some crazy, amazing, beyond human explanation stuff amongst the Samaritans, and he was getting a lot of people's attention. The Bible teaches us very clearly the devil is real. The devil is real, and the devil is powerful, and he can do some crazy stuff. Now, don't get, don't get me wrong. It's not like there is this like yin-yang dualism between God and Satan as though they're like on equal footings. They're not at all. But at the same time, don't think that there is no such thing as real, legitimate, even today, evil, powerful forces. The Bible teaches, here's what we need. One word, discernment. We need discernment when it comes to the forces of power at work in the world. This is so important because, because some of us maybe even, maybe you sat down with someone like, I don't know, like a psychic and been like, how was she able to tell me that? She was able to explain things that there's no way she was able to explain. And we feel like, oh, that must mean. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of us, some of us have had experiences where we've been in other places of worship. I don't mean other churches. I mean worshiping other gods. And we're like, there was some kind of force going on there that was undeniable. There was something impactful happening in that place amongst those people. And we're like, maybe that's God. There's something. What is... Mm. Some of us are like, you know what? It, it really just, it impacts me getting to meditate in this particular way. It's really been quite transformational upon my heart. Upon my life. Which must mean, because there's a power here that I should lean into this. No, 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 no. Bethel. We need to hear 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Do not put out the Spirit's fire, a.k.a. don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater when you come to challenging stuff and say the Spirit's not working. Don't do that. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. But here's what you need to do. Test everything. We need discernment. Hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil. Just because you come across or I come across a power that is beyond explanation does not mean it is from God and should be followed. Here's the discernment question to ask. Because if it's from God, if it's the Holy Spirit, do you know what the Holy Spirit always does? Do you know what He delights to do? He delights to lift up Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit delights to draw attention and praise and following to Jesus. 
So here's my question for you when you face powers of many kinds, which I think probably almost every one of us have. Was Jesus being exalted? Jesus Christ of the Bible who died on the cross, who was buried, and who rose to life. Was he lifted up? If he was not, run. Run. You might say, oh, it's innocent enough. It's not a big deal. No, if Jesus isn't being exalted, the devil knows how to play the long game, and it's not the Holy Spirit. Is Jesus exalted? This dude, Simon, was not exalting Jesus. And the people had been swept up with false faith in this guy. But we read in verse 12. When the people heard what Philip was doing, they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. All kinds of people hear Philip, see Philip, are like, wow, this Jesus, oh, he's even better. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. And so they start following him. And then notice what it says in verse 13. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? Simon, the evil sorcerer of great might, gives his life to Jesus, says, I'm going to follow Jesus, and gets baptized. That's amazing. That's incredible. We should start having a party. Wait a minute, though. Wait a minute. Because this is a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale. Don't jump on Simon's bandwagon too quick. Because when God moves, there are some who come to him for the wrong reasons. Verse 14, our text continues. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just take a little side note, parenthesis, rabbit trail just for a moment. For those of you, if you're like newer into this whole church thing, you can like listen to this, but you're probably just not even going to get caught up in this. But for some who've been around church for a while, I need to bring some clarity here because this has been a point of confusion in some circles for many people over the years, okay? So let me just take a brief moment here. What we are seeing here is in the book of Acts, there are actually what you might call three Pentecost-like moments that happen, okay? There's, there's three 
Pentecost moments that correspond with the map that Jesus gave where you're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. And so the book of Acts is actually framed around those progressions, the Jews, the Samaritans, and then on to the Gentiles. And at each of the moments where the gospel starts to be proclaimed to each new group, we have a new Pentecost moment. Pentecost-like moment. So Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out, Jerusalem and Judea, the Jews get to hear about Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And there's this major first moment that then turns into the normative where everyone else who believes in Jesus from that moment on receives the Holy Spirit. What we have here is the major second, if you want to call it, Pentecost moment. The gospel is going to the Samaritans for the first time. And because it's the first time amongst the Samaritans, the spirit is being poured out. We'll see in a couple weeks in chapter 10, when the gospel goes to Cornelius, this guy who's a Gentile, you're going to see the third Pentecost-like moment where the spirit of God is poured out on this dude and his family, Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10. Here's the point, okay? The little end to my parentheses point. This is not teaching. There are two separate moments where you believe in Jesus and separately receive the Holy Spirit. That is a misapplication of what's going on here. What we are seeing here is the second of three significant, unique moments in the redemptive history of God building his church. And so at this point, for the first time, the Samaritans are receiving the Holy Spirit, and then from that day forward, as each person believed in Jesus among the Samaritans, they received the Holy Spirit at the moment they follow Jesus. Okay? Let's go back to our text now. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. See what I mean? You, you think Simon's in the right spot. No, 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 no. Give me this ability, Simon says to Peter, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon sees this incredible gift of God being poured out by his Holy Spirit as the apostles came down and prayed for people. And he's like, I want me some of that. Now here's what's really important. Okay. The phrase, just to make sure you're crystal clear on what's going on in Simon's heart, the phrase Simon uses. What I just read there, where he says, give me also this ability. The phrase ability, in the original language when, when Simon was saying this, Another and perhaps even more accurate and revealing way of translating that word is authority. Authority. Remember, Simon is the guy who had everybody looking amazed at him, right? Simon is the guy whose literal nickname is the great divine power. That's what everybody called him as he walked around town. Oh, the great divine power has walked into the room. And Simon is saying here, 
Let, how much is it going to take, Peter? Thousands? Millions? What is it? How much money do I need to give you so that I can have the authority so that people lift me up on their shoulders? So that people exalt and call me great? So that people rally around to chase after me? How much money do you need to give me that title again? When God works, some people come to him for the wrong reasons. Chasing not after God as an end in himself, but God as a means to exalt ourselves. How tempting this can be for all of us. To see God as a means to make much of me. Like, let me, let me pick on my own tribe, okay? My vocation. Let me pick on pastors for a moment. How tempting it can be for me, for those who, who stand up on a stage like this and come before the people of God in the name of serving God, to start to have thoughts like, wow, look at all these people who are coming to listen to me. What really made this a really good morning was how well I did. How easy and tempting it can be to take on an office saying, I'm doing it to serve the Lord, but it's really all about me having control. Me having my say, everything going through me. How, how often interesting it is that we say we want to follow the voice of the Holy Spirit, but, but everyone else's voice doesn't really seem to get listened to. It just seems like the pastor's voice has a real similarity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. How temp I mean, how, how tragic is that? How horribly wrong is that for someone who is supposedly serving in the name of God to use God for their own ploys, but who in this room has not sadly, heartbreakingly seen that go down? And that's not just a temptation for pastors. It's a temptation for every single one of us to turn God into serving us rather than saying, I serve God. Simon saw God as a means to his own end. Do you, are you here seeking the Lord, serving the Lord, doing things for the Lord as a means to your own end? Verse 20, Peter answered Simon, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. 
You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you and having such a thought for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter sees right into what is going on in this guy's heart. And he challenges Simon frankly, and he challenges, frankly, each one of us. What's really going on in your heart? What's really going on in my heart as we say we are serving God? If you want to use God as a means to your own end, the path, Simon, is nothing but death. That's where that path leads. Simon hears this and responds with with what can only be described as like barely lukewarm. Verse 24, then Simon answered. After After getting raked over the coals by Peter, he says, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. He doesn't doesn't fall on his face in repentance. He doesn't pray out himself. He doesn't doesn't see the significance of his sin. He just says, pray for me that I I don't get sent to hell. Pray for me, Peter. He was stuck on his own pride. Stuck on elevating himself But God, in this moment, is not stuck, friends. God is not stuck for a moment. When, verse 25 says, they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. The gospel keeps advancing. The work of God keeps going forward. Lives keep getting changed. We don't really know what happens with Simon ultimately in the long run. It's left kind of hanging because this is a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale challenging every single one of us to ask this question. Why are you here? Why are you here? Why am I here? Why are we here at church doing this thing? Why, why do we serve in the different areas that you serve in? Why, why do you give money into the offering boxes at the back or send an e-transfer? Why are we doing this? Why are we seeking after God? Is it because, man, I need this fix in my life? My, my marriage is off the rockers. My health is struggling in this particular way. My job is falling apart. My, my health is going wrong. My life is going wrong. My money is going wrong. My whatever it is is going wrong, and I just need a fix. It seemed a fix. Okay, let me ask you this question. Whatever the problem fix need is, if God in a moment fixed it, got you the new perfect job, got your money issues all out of debt, got your health issues all better, instantly healed, got your marriage back on the rocks, got your kids loving you again, got your whatever it is. Would you just go on with the rest of your life and just leave God in the dust? Because you got what you needed? Is God just a means to your end? I mean, make no mistake, 
Our God is a heavenly Father who cares about each and every one of our needs. He, he sees your broken heart. He sees the need that you have. He cares about the problem you are going through. But he is not just a means to an end. He is the end that you need. He is not just a genie in a bottle so you can keep living your life. He is the purpose for your life. He is the one whom you are made to find satisfaction and joy and eternal delight in. Not just to cruise by so that you can chase it somewhere else. Why do you serve? How tempting it is. To seek after, well, I want to lead this ministry. I want to teach in this classroom. I want to start this new opportunity. I want to drive this team in order to get what? Control? The curriculum that I want? The schedule that fits my family schedule? The plan going to the way I really like it? The songs I actually like to sing? Is that, is that the point? Why do I give? How, how tempting it is to potentially use our giving as a like manipulation tool. I'll give if I will get something in return. I'll give if you'll do the ministry the way I want it to be done. I'll give if you'll hire the person I really like. I'll give if you'll follow the plan the way I do, but as soon as you veer off of what I would really like, eh, I'm going to pull back my checkbook. As if service is about me. As if giving is about me. As if worship, here's one you've heard me say before, but I just, oh, I really loved that worship today. What does that statement when we walk out of a Sunday morning mean? The very definition of worship is pointing attention to God. What does it mean that it was really good for me? What does that even mean? Why are we here? Do the banners outside say, here to glorify Alan and make disciples who make disciples? Or put your name in there. Glorify me. Is that, is that why we're here? No. No, God is moving. And in his grace and his kindness as he moves, he extends open hands. That if our hearts are in the wrong place, to repent and to run back to him. Because this isn't about any one of us. It's not about me. It's not about Bethel. It's not about you. We're here because Jesus is amazing. Jesus is glorious. Jesus went to the cross. He laid down his life. He did what no one else could ever do in the life he lived. He died the death we all deserve to die. He's the only one who's ever been able to conquer death. He rules in eternity, and he is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And we are here for him. We're here to make much of him. We're here to enjoy him. We're here to delight in him. We're here to find our fulfillment in him. We're here to lead others towards him. It is all about him. And if in some way small, 
or some way huge. You or I have gone awry today in that. The call of our text is to run back humbly in repentance and say, forgive me, it's all about you.